Welcome to the Extra Dimensional Life, the podcast of Extra Dimensional Wine Co. Yeah. We are your hosts, Kate Graham and Hardy Wallace, and this podcast is produced by James Joyner. Thank you for tuning in to the Extra Dimensional Life. Our guest today is visionary winemaker and friend, Dan Petrosky of Masakan Winery. In this episode, we learn about Dan's roots, the creation of Masakan, and his vision for wine in the metaverse. Listen in to hear Dan's thoughts on casting a wide net in order to embrace the full magic of what California wine has to offer. Enjoy this episode of The Extra Dimensional Life. Greetings, this is Hardy Wallace and Kate Graham with the one and the only Dan Petrosky of Massacan. Yeah. Welcome, Dan. <laughs> um, I can't do much better than that, but thank you guys. It's so good to see you. Uh, it's amazing to have you here and to have you as guest number one, one dun, 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 for the extra dimensional life. There's no one else like... This just makes me feel good because, I, I mean, I think we have known each other for now about 15 years. Yeah, it sounds about right. And it's just been amazing as fellow winemakers to, when you see people that blast off in a direction and don't like veer from that, there's just this like, from the moment we met, I felt like it was like a slingshot had been pulled back and let go. And we've just watched like the Dan Petrosky experience <laughs> in a really beautiful way. And it just feels so good to, to have you here. And there's so much to talk about and yeah. I, I appreciate that. I, um, it was scary along the way, moving that fast. Um, 15 years sounds like a long time, but it flew by. I mean, and here we are. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. So I mean, we've, we've got a ton of stuff to talk about today. I know, you know, one, we want to talk about the state of Massacon today, but for people, I know you've, you've talked about your story um, in the past, but for those that haven't heard it in a little while, I think one thing that's really, I think, important for, at least for people to hear is one kind of the Dan before wine, because you've had this incredible transition and, you know, a lot of people in the wine industry, whether it's from multi-generational families, whether it's, you know, have gone to school for winemaking, but like start out early in their life as this is their path. And you have had multiple lives and have done things at incredibly high levels. So if you could just take us back, we don't have to go, you know, the two hour story, but like, you know, Dan, you know, in school, Dan, you know, the family, Dan getting out here, you know, kind of a life before, life before wine. No, I I definitely love my my kind of arc over the years, but it really still comes back to this one thing and one thing only was when I was a kid, I didn't read books as much as I should have. Um, I read magazines and magazines to me were this transportational energy that allowed me to kind of turn the page and go to Rome or turn a page and look, you know, buy those clothes and make me look like Steve McQueen or, <laughs> or turn a page and drink that bottle of wine that just got, you know, 90 points in the wine spectator. And that to me was this, um, 
aspirational, transportational, and a goal setting in my life because my family growing up in Brooklyn, New York, we weren't, we weren't uh, sophisticated. We weren't cultural. You know, we lived, we, we ate at dinner at home every night. We ate out once a year. Wine wasn't a big part of my upbringing. It was, you know, in my mom's glass, one glass a night with ice cubes, red wine with ice cubes. So I was able to escape through the pages of magazines. And then as I kind of graduated into uh, college where I can actually work and intern, I was focused on things like the New York Times and the magazine Antiques and Interview Magazine, Art in America. And I kind of took this kind of this life of living vicariously and I kind of started working in that field and it felt so good because I was still living vicariously. And then as I kind of left college and got a job at Sports Illustrated and then Time Magazine and I had access to 110 magazines. I didn't have to go to my bodega the first <laughs> Thursday of every month to buy the, to buy the next issue of Condé Nast Traveler. Um, you got it a couple <laughs> weeks early. Yeah. yeah. And then like, then you you would literally, when you started at the company, you got a checklist of what magazines you wanted. I just literally checked all of them. And so with your mail would be delivered, you know, the current week or current month's magazine. And, and so, and to this day, I, you know, when we were just chatting as I, I walked into this beautiful space, I still think of Masakan as an editorial brand. It's still this thing that lives in my head. Mm -hmm. And that's how I approached winemaking too. And a lot of people always kind of knocked me for it when I was talking about how I make wine because it's made for the table, you know, 12 or 18 months from now or 36 months if I'm making Cabernet. Um, and then it works its way backwards. And so it's always been this idea of transporting you know, where I want it to be, where I want to be with it. And that was, goes back to, you know, me being a teenager, <laughs> like 16 years old and subscribing to Condé Nast Traveler because my family never traveled, <laughs> you know, and it was my way of escape. And, you know, a lot of us use music and books to do that. I used magazines. So the big part of my life that um, feels shitty is that uh, the magazine industry is not doing very well. <laughs> But, but the wine industry, well, the wine industry isn't doing that very well either. <laughs> we can get into that in a minute. Talk about that. <laughs> yeah. So with the whirlwind of you getting into the magazine world, um, what was that real kind of switch from from the life at Time and Sports Illustrated? What was that real switch to reinventing and kind of that next stage of what we want to call it, Dan 2.0, 3.0, um, that became Wine Dan? Yeah, that was that that hindsight's twenty twenty, and I didn't realize it when it was happening. But as I look back, I became kind of the de facto wine expert amongst my friends. So I had a, a travel and entertainment budget where I would go and entertain clients in New York City restaurants. And the best thing for me to do is not allow them to buy the most expensive wine on the list because then I wouldn't be able to eat tomorrow uh, at my next dinner. And so that caused me to read. Um, wine books and wine magazines and that caused me to become the person that everyone handed the wine list to and so I, I knew all the stories you know the, some of the early stories that I loved were the stories of Sean Thackeray and then then the Antonori's and then you kind of like work your way from California to Italy to France um, but I didn't know how wine was made so I felt like a fake and I felt like this imposter syndrome. I'm like, I can tell you everything there is to know about wine, except how the fuck it's made. <laughs> and, and coupled with that, I was going to my 10th year of, of work at Time Inc. Um, at the 15th year anniversary of an employee, everyone 
in the company would get either a six-month full-paid sabbatical or a 12-month half-paid sabbatical. And this was, you know, mostly done by the early days of uh, um, Henry Lewis and Britton Haddon when they, were, when they had reporters that they wanted to go out and write their books. And so I was like, oh, I'm five years away from a sabbatical. Um, but the reality of it was I wasn't because, you know, with the AOL, AOL Time Warner merger and then the state of, uh, uh, of magazines in that period in 2005, I was like, five years from now, is, mag- is this magazine even going to be here? And so I, I, I basically ripped the Band-Aid off and I said, shit, I'm going to take my own sabbatical. I had a little apartment in Brooklyn that I was able to sell and I moved to Italy to learn how wine was made. Mm. I spent a year there working on a vineyard, not in the cellar. They thought I was, uh, um, it was two families in this cooperative and one family didn't trust the other family for me being there. They thought I was a spy in the cellar. And so <laughs> I, you know, the closest I got to making wine was, you know, hanging what, out with the guys on the catwalk, smoking uh-huh. cigarettes while they were doing pump overs and but, then but asked were, me to but leave. were you a spy for one of the families? <laughs> <laughs> no. I was definitely not a spy. Um, it, so yeah, so I, I went and spent a year uh, with a with a father and son who owned uh, a significant portion of the vineyard land, and we you know went to the vineyard three days a week, worked with the team, had a glass of wine with them at lunch every day, and uh, every day we worked, and made my way around Italy just as a tourist, learning a little bit more about the wine growing regions, writing my own history of wine and what I liked, and and then did as much conversational understanding of wine. I wasn't expecting to come back as an expert in making wine, um, but I was going to come back with a base of a knowledge that I can kind of continue to grow upon. But I still didn't want to be a winemaker. I wanted to be a salesperson, a storyteller, a marketer, and I wanted to be in New York. But in 2006, I wasn't able to find the right job that allowed me to take an MBA, 10 years of corporate experience, editorial experience, finance experience, sales experience, and a year living on a vineyard in Italy, and now uh, a working knowledge of Italian. And I was like, all right, someone's got to hire me. And no one really was saying, yeah, let's hire you. Um, But then Andy Smith uh, at Dumont uh, took a risk. It was 06 vintage. It was a big yield, bigger than everyone thought it was going to be. He's like, shit, I need another intern. Um, His tasting group was with a bunch of guys from the Anthill Forums crew who I had kind of become friendly with. And they, you know, shot me Andy's email and I reached out and was like, I don't have a job. <laughs> I don't know how to make wine. He's like, how old are you? What did you do for the last year? He was just, he was very practical, very Scottish of him. And, um, <laughs> and he was like, you work hard, you played football, you did all these things in your life. You're going to be fine. Um, and then the best thing was the South African, uh, Jan Smith, calls me and says, I need to know if we're going to get along. I was like, what? I haven't, I'm like, what's happening here? And he's like, the worst thing that could happen is if you and I hate each other because we're the only interns for Dumal in 2006. And I was like, I'm pretty easy going, man. I just don't know how to make wine. So if you can, if you can bear with me and teach me a few things, I think we'll be just fine. Um, and then, yeah, then that's kind of fast forward to – you know, going on what, 18, almost 18 years later, um, Andy took a chance on me, gave me an opportunity at Larkmead, uh, didn't know how to make wine there either. And then uh, he, he kind of mentored me during the early phases of it. And, uh, but then there was just one thing pulling at me and it was, why are we drinking all this big flavor, high energy wine? <laughs> <laughs> um, and... Yeah, and Masakan was kind of built out of out of nostalgia and romance for a time that I lived a couple of years prior, 
living on an island in the Mediterranean, just drinking nothing but white wine and eating eating local and drinking local and, um, you know, nine out of 10 glasses of wine were white and uh, the Mediterranean climate of Napa Valley, Sonoma County made me question why we are only drinking red. Um, you know, this again, 2006 wasn't a big, you had your, you had your California Chardonnays, Sauvignon Blanc was just making a name for itself post, you know, Mandavi Fumé Blanc era. Um, and, but there wasn't really a big, push towards anything other than like conundrum at the Safeway and, and like, there was really nothing else. So, and that was a big thing conundrum yeah. back in the day. I remember when it was allocated. Now they make a red wine. Like, <laughs> who would have thought they would have made a red conundrum? <laughs> wow. That must have been a fun brainstorming session. <laughs> so you had the experience at, you had the experience at Dumont, you moved over to Larkmead and then with Masakan, did Masakan start? Um, were you, and then you, from your experience at Larkmead, you actually then became the head head winemaker for many years at Larkmead. Was Masakan launched before you were the head winemaker at Larkmead, or um, kind of simultaneously? Oh, that was before. Um, I was given the freedom. I worked at Larkmead by myself from 06 to sixteen before I hired an, uh, an assistant winemaker. And I was given the freedom to manage a cellar. And, you know, during that era, and, and and Hardy and Kate, you guys know this as well, during that era of uh, young winemakers coming up in the world as assistants, as associates, we're given the freedom to kind of, you know, fall on our face, make mistakes, make great wine, do cool shit. Um, but also just practically, it's because the owners of the wineries are like, I can pay you less and give you a freedom <laughs> to do a little bit more work. I know you'll be at the winery longer than me because you're working your own projects. You'll be able to take a look at everything that's going on. So I worked for a lawyer at the owner of Larkmead, and he, and he was like, oh, I got my pound of flesh out of Dan. He's here six days a week, 12 hours a day because he's got his own little thing on his side. I don't even know what it is. But he just, he, he just liked seeing me around all the time. And it, it was good for business because I was there for – for not only for customers on the weekends at times, but for trade and uh, just for the business in general. So I was, it was, uh, it was really cool. We actually, at the time, we trademarked uh, or we did a TTB name, DBA, as the associate because I was the associate winemaker and we were thinking about how do we create a second label for Larkmead? What do we want to call it? Well, maybe let Dan make it on the side and we'll call it the associate. And I'm like, it didn't really fit into anything Larkmead related, but it was just, you know, I worked with a general manager there and it was always a, a, a big thinker. So he, he wanted to try something out there, but, uh, yeah, so I was, I started Masakan as the associate winemaker at Larkmead. It sounds like a, uh, the associate sounds like a name, uh, an attorney would, uh, would, would, come, up <laughs> would come up with you like, oh, this is me, this is my associate here. And he's, he's only $42 an hour. <laughs> <laughs> we don't pay him very well. <laughs> <laughs> we pay him 42 <laughs> you pay him 420 <laughs> was jess in the picture at this point yes um jess actually <laughs> she came into the picture uh in august 1st of 2009 so i had uh, got my llc registered on june 5th 2009 i had uh got my two three vineyard contracts and i met her on a blind date uh from a, a someone in, a mutual friend in New York set us up, and we were in San Francisco. And I thought I was a cool winemaker guy coming down from Napa, <laughs> meeting, the, meeting the girl, <laughs> and and telling her how cool I was and how 
I was I made wine and and then she was just like looking at me going, Is your wine delicious? And I was like, fuck. Um <laughs> But the best part Good about question. it was the best question. Yeah. It's it's actually, honestly, Kate, it's the way I think about every bottle of Masakan when I'm blending. Is this delicious? Are people going to, is Jess going to like this? Um, and she gets, she gets to taste a lot of those blends um, and at least smell them. Um, so yeah, and then I, I, and I told her, I said, hey, look, I am a winemaker. I am starting a brand. I am going to be harvesting grapes soon. I'm going to be off the grid for the next two to three months. So if this is going to work, we should start dating. <laughs> and um, and so we did. We went out on like three dates in five days. Um, I drove back and forth from the city. And then she had she was living in Palo Alto and decided to move up to Healdsburg to kind of test the waters of dating a winemaker in wine country and had her own little kind of place in Healdsburg and came over to Calistoga to visit me and um, you know, hang out at night after a long day to ask me how things were going. And she eventually moved in later that year. Um, and we were both perfectly, you know, in tune with, with the same age from kind of the, you know, the same parts of Brooklyn. So we had this really kind of parallel lives that just came together. And she's been, you know, she's literally been the person that I think about every bottle of Masakan needs to taste delicious or it's not going to sell. Love that. Well, it's really nice too. When I think of like kind of our earliest times hanging out, um, really, um, it's not just, oh, hanging out with Dan. It's like, I, I really think back to like the times where I feel like, and it, it's something that I think both you and Jess offered to the community in general, but um, going back to the days of the champagne parties and just such an incredible act of like generosity from the two of you all. But it, it wasn't like, hey, this is Dan's party and like Jess is here. It was like you two together, like hosting people from all different styles of wine and kind of just, but everyone coming together around, like who can't come to, together around bubbles. And especially during those times where there was kind of like Napa crew and snow, like there was kind of the iron curtain between, you know, that separated the valleys and very much from styles and winemakers and personalities and this. And yet everyone would show up at a champagne party and the two of you together just having like this, this, like holding court in the most generous of ways. And I mean, I, we were talking about those parties earlier and just yeah, like, and the intentionality and I mean, activities for kids. Oh my God. And our favorite picture of Before Airbay was born is from that party with Maple. We have it on our fridge. Mm. Yeah, that's really sweet. Good times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I was ta I was taught a lot about hospitality uh, through mm -hmm. my wife, and and that was that was the focal point of it. Um, <clears throat> the first time someone brought a non champagne wine, and I threw it over the fence. I tried to throw it over the <laughs> fence. Oh boy, did I get yelled at! <laughs> <laughs> that was Put never going to happen back. again. <laughs> that's pretty amazing. <laughs> but the one thing, the one thing that. Um, we did was we anchored the we anchored the the summer on Memorial Day and Labor Day and Labor Day was hard to do because it ended up being harvest most of the time as kind of as the climate changed in the last decade and and harvest dates and had got moved up in the world and but uh, the the end of the summer was the end of the summer of Riesling so we took you know the Champagne campaign came from Laura Mannix uh, Cork Buzz and the summer of Riesling came from mm -hmm. Paul Greco's Terroir and so we had these two anchors and. But what was so funny was that we found that 
Riesling, which is supposed to be everybody in the wine industry's darling wine, was not well received in the community. It was something that was very odd. And even, you know, going back to the deliciousness, I, I didn't think Jess liked Riesling as enough to want to throw parties. <laughs> so she's like, don't you think you should not throw this party this year because you're already in the middle of harvest? And I was like, good idea. <laughs> Scratch that one. Exactly. <laughs> So one thing, to Dan, it's, you know, I think for a lot of folks, and this is, again, goes to like, like the, un, like, it just goes to the legend of Dan Petrosky, is that when you think of Masakan and you think of the work at Larkmead, um, you could see those from the outside as two radically different paths in winemaking. Obviously, like, you know, crisp Italian varietal white wines. Um, and then on the flip side, like deep, you know, world class. Not that the not not to say that wines aren't world class, but but that you have this Napa Cabernet that Larkmead had a you know has a specific style, um, but that has a very different style of winemaking, very different kind of audience, very different kind of world. So you've got two almost different from the outside, two different paths, but yet you're at the top of each one of those fields. Um, different pick dates, different everything, viticulture. How how did you balance that in those worlds? Um, and in some ways, thinking with those worlds, like, you know, back in the time, especially 2010, 2011, that, that time, like, showing Masakan, but also being like, I'm also a Napa cab winemaker. Like, this was kind of like... With, Masakan may have had a different level of coolness in, like, say, the Psalm world than, say, Larkmead, um, where things were, you know, it was the new California, you know, blowing up. How did you balance both of those at the highest level? Like, that to me is, like, when I think of, like, the magic, like, you could do both of these things and still be authentically you in both of those places. Like, was that ever something that you wrestled with or you, was, you were challenged with? No, thank you for that. <laughs> Very kind words. Um, I... I never thought of it that way. What I actually thought about more was, you know, going back to Andy Smith where, you know, I hate to bring points into the conversation, but back in the day when I first met him in the 2006 era, he was like one of the only winemakers in California to receive 95 points or more on like six different grape varieties. I thought that was this broad talent. And then, you know, then, then I was like, well, I'm not, I never thought of myself as making 11 different white grape varieties or seven different red grape varieties at, at Larkmead. I never thought of it that way. But I, what I did think about was I'm not really a great winemaker. Um, <laughs> I'm more of um, – I can get to a point in where we are, where the wines are going to present a deliciousness that wants to put people around a table. So I never struggled with the idea of becoming – at the highest level of the game, as long as the wines were drinkable. And what I saw happening in California at the time was people talking out of both sides of their mouth, making wines one way, but drinking wines another way. And I just felt that, you know, to, to use the many, many overused term, a much overused term, authenticity, was the most unauthentic thing I could ever imagine. If you're doing something for a paycheck, great. But the reality of it was just make wines that people are going to want to drink and 
what I think when you get to the core of it is that people want to gravitate around that. And I think that's where the magic is, is bringing people together. You talked about the champagne party. It's very, it's no different than how I think about wine. It's like, how do you bring people together around the table? And you can't bring them together around the table if no one wants to drink the fucking wine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) But yeah, it's, um, and I, you know, I kind of had to, justify what Masakan was to the owners of Larkney by saying, hey, it's all white wine. I'm not going to compete with you. And I will actually be able to see the vintage before everyone else because I will be, you know, from Sonoma to Carneros to Calistoga, I will be, you know, harvesting grapes for a month before we even consider bringing in, uh, you know, a Calistoga uh, grape from uh, from the Larkney estate. So it gave me an opportunity to see fermentation kinetics in advance uh, to help me understand you know, flavor profiles, texture, even though white white grapes, we throw the skins out, you can get a lot of phenolic texture from the wines and understand what the vintage is providing, not only when you're tasting it on the vine, but also through the early stages of uh, fermentation and, and um, pressing and so forth and so on. So I really used Masakan as like, I would, to use a football analogy, it's like my preseason to the, the, the regular season game at Larkmead. Um, and that was just uh, something I did for eight years. You know, I played football for eight years. So I, I know what it was like to do three a days and have a preseason and then get into the regular season. So I just kind of did what was familiar to me. Um, I took a lot of those superstitions too. I still kind of put my pants on the same way that before a football game during harvest. You know, there's still harvest superstitions that, uh, that I took out of the locker room that I still uh, manage, you know, this 18 years later. So, oh my God, superstitions are, uh, I, I, like, it's, it's, I like to think of them almost as ritual. Like, I think that is like, it's just that way of like, just getting your head in that space. And yeah, absolutely. So now kind of moving forward to kind of, we're at Dan with both uh, Larkmead and Masa Khan. And then there's the time where like really that breakout of, like, you were focused on Masa Khan. That is your bread and butter, you've left Larkmead. What did that feel like at that time? That was always in the cards. Um, and what I mean by that is every five years, I wrote a business plan for Masakon. So starting in 09, then again in 14, then again in 19. So it was always kind of in the cards that Masakon needed to get to a place. And that place for me was, there was, it was, there was a spreadsheet with a, with a, a data dashboard. And that data dashboard had two endpoints to it. The two endpoints were do this on my own and have a very successful, financially successful life uh, with my wife and my family. Do this on my own, build a really successful brand and sell it and have a very successful <laughs> life somewhere in the south of France <laughs> with my wife and my family. And that was um, that was a big risk. Um, and I think what that was for me was act three. And what I mean by that is act one was my my editorializing of wine. Act two is my creation of wine. Act three is, can I make this a really good business? And that was, you know, my arc from magazines to being an intern to being, you know, on sabbatical to being, you know, an assistant winemaker to, you know, now it's like, is this a real business? Can I make this work? It doesn't make sense on paper. It's been subsidized by, you know, the generosity of, uh, of, of, not only my former boss at Larkmead, but also um, my peer set. And I think that was the most pressing, challenging thing for me. So it was scary, Um, but I was committed and I knew there was opportunity. I saw it coming. I saw the world 
where the world was going, um, whether, you know, people drinking lighter, brighter, fresher, that's not a new idea. That's a, you know, age old idea, but it also kind of came out of partly the new California movement and the in pursuit of balance movement, which I think we all, um, miss a little bit. Um, there was a little bit of camaraderie around that, which was wonderful. And now today, if you think about it, all the things that people were espousing 15 years ago and that we're, that a, lot, a group of us are still doing today is are, is really catching fire. Like they're, people are drinking lighter, brighter, fresher. They're not drinking as much. They're, they're, drink, they're gravitating towards interesting white wines and orange wines and skin contact and things that are um, savory and umami and, and lower alcohol and all the things that, um, that we're afraid of as a wine industry is something we should be embracing and lifting up. And so I, I was scared, but I was also like, this is the moment. There's nothing, no better time. And I'm also a very competitive person. I'm, you know, I like, I like to win at things. <laughs> um, and so I, I looked at a couple of brands and I said, these are my, these are, I want to be this, of, I want to be the Santa Margarita of California. I want to be the Cloudy Bay of California. I want to let them know that I'm here and I'm going to work really hard to not steal all your market share, but maybe displace some of it, um, hopefully grow market market share along with you and have some fun and, and just be able to make affordable, delicious wines that people want to be around a table with. And that was something I think the, the, the current state of wine country, Napa and Sonoma, is, it's a really difficult state for a consumer because it's a limited who we can sell wine to because of, you know, just the, the, the economics of a weekend in the valley is uh, is really it's it's really intimidating. It sure is. Yeah. It's um, I mean, it makes going like to like Tahoe or whatever for a weekend look um like a deal. Yeah, it's um, you know, I think it really comes down to that. Um, yeah, like it's no longer like I'm going to hit four wineries in a day without dropping you know four digits, and it's a very different world out there for a lot of folks. Um, at that kind of top level of of tasting, but kind of going to what you were saying, like what I really saw, I mean, again, these are things that we see from the outside <laughs> might be radically different from what you're feeling inside. But when you made that shift, it was very much like, it was like you were lit on fire and found like this, like a very high gear. And it was, you were everywhere. And from whether it was just, out there, you know, finding your wines everywhere in the market, but in social, in every piece, any new technology that was coming out, any new mode of communication, even going back to old modes of communication, like publications and everything, it was like you put your self and you put your soul into a million different places. That was really beautiful to watch. And, you know, some of those, you're like, that might stick, that may not, but like, it was just like, from an outsider's perspective of like watching someone like just completely go for it. And I know for, for like Kate, myself, and probably for a lot of other people that are also in this space, that is one, incredibly intimidating at some point. Cause you're like, Oh my gosh, like this is all these things are happening. But at that same time, it is incredibly inspiring. So you get to see like, Oh my gosh, like this is what it's like to like really like dive in all the way and seeing the wines everywhere too. is just like, that's a part that I think, you know, it's, it's not just seeing them 
on like in media and social or whatnot, but it's like, oh, like everywhere you go, like there are the wines. And, and that kind of leads me to a thought that really, I, I'm wondering how you, if it ever came as a challenge for you, because um, you hear it in the market sometimes, but here you are getting into the market with, again, a lot of, at the times, you know, a lot of Italian varieties, also some SB as well. But when you're out there in the market with California Italian whites at a price point that's not the lowest, you know, you're not, you're not, you know not, not the low cost leader, how did you kind of move through a lot of, you know, that what I would assume to be some resistance where like, oh, like here's your uh, Takai Friulano, here's, you know, this white blend that, but I've got an Italian version of this for, you know, for a you know, hundred bucks less a case or how, and what was the message and what still is that of bringing these varieties and the way that you make them through California? Like what is the importance of those in the market? How do you get people, how did you get people to, I guess, to embrace those the way you did? Because people embrace these wines. They're, they don't just serve them because they're at the, you know, oh, I can make a couple extra bucks here. They, they love them. So what was that like? Um, there, there's a lot to unpack there uh, because <laughs> I spent a lot of my time thinking of exactly about how to how to position what I tried to create with Masakan in a in a meaningful way, and it goes back to a lot of it is affordability. And you know, when I started Masakan, there was a dozen reasons why I started it, and one of them was because my mother couldn't afford to buy lark meat because it was too expensive at, at the time, fifty five dollars a bottle. So affordability has always been something for me as the most important um, measurement of Masakan's availability. And I remember in 2010, 2000, I, I raised the price every two years after my first minute, so 9, 11. And I told the folks at Dennis Kelly when he was the Somme head, head wine buyer at French Laundry, he was pouring Sauvignon Blanc by the glass for two years in a row. And I said, hey, Dennis, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to raise the price in the market, but I'm going to keep it the same for you. And he said, <laughs> and, and he said "No, don't do that. Raise it. We'll both make more money." And and uh, so I started to I started to realize that there was this this gravity pull towards people wanted to be a part of Napa, but they couldn't afford it, you know. And so Masakun gave them an opportunity to be to put Napa Valley on the table in the French Laundry when there's 500 Cabernets that majority of people of French Laundry couldn't afford. And I think that was a that was a bell ringer for me with regards to how to to get people into the fold. And and what I ended up doing was very tactical. I was able to work with a broker here in California for for almost uh, almost a decade, and I made sure that I got to know as many of the reps as I possibly could. I got to be on a text message relationship with the reps, and I always told every one of them because it was a broker, not a distributor. They all worked for themselves under the under the umbrella of this brokerage that never leave an appointment without knowing what to buy the glass price is. Tokai is not an easy sell. It's not a hand sell. But people will pay 15 or 16 or $17 by the glass to try something as opposed to 60 or $70 a bottle when they can't pronounce the fucking Grape Friday. Mm -hmm. So I told everybody, never leave an appointment without knowing what to buy the glass is. And then once you hear what the buyer says, never say no to that person. <laughs> so I don't care what your boss says or your manager says. I approved that price. So I didn't have a floor. And granted, you'll be surprised at how many people didn't 
have like a basement. Like it wasn't like, oh, we needed at nine dollars, and like yeah. it wasn't that. It was like we needed really at fifteen as a, as opposed to sixteen. And I'm like, never say no because when you drop that first three cases, that buyer is calling you for the next three cases as opposed to you not selling them a bottle of wine and then having to call them three months later because your manager's like, hey, get in the door and like, why aren't you you know get anything on the list? So when a when an order can come in overnight from the buyer before you even wake up you become the the sales rep's best friend and they think that's the most important thing so it was a very you know the, you're as good as you're you're as good as the people who sell your wine and the people that sell the wine like the wine they think it's delicious they think it's affordable they think it fits in on many tables and many styles of food um, and it also has a connection to California and to Napa Valley and to Sonoma County a lot of my fruit comes from Sonoma that allows for people to feel like they're putting, you know, the best of something on the table without feeling that it's not the best of something. Yeah. And it's been a, it's been a really fun, you know, kind of, it's been a really fun ride watching wholesale, the ups and downs and roller coaster of wholesale over the last, you know, since I started, I, 2019, I said, I want to be in nothing but a wholesale brand. I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be a direct-to-consumer brand because you know shipping a thirty-dollar bottle of white wine costs the same as shipping a three hundred-dollar bottle of red wine, and they weigh the same. So, but I can't I can't get people to like grasp the idea that it's going to cost you five bucks to ship that thirty-dollar bottle. Um, so I was like, I just need to get through that and get right into right on the table. And I said, I want to be a hundred percent wholesale. And in twenty nineteen, I sold fifty percent of all my Masakan wine was BTG. By the glass. Wow. 50%. That's huge. And it was, um, and I was like, then the pandemic happened and changed everybody. Yeah, right. And then you became a DTC <laughs> brand. <laughs> and then I started a magazine. And, and I'm part of the metaverse. And, and a cookbook. And, yeah. a, and all that shit, you know. And that literally, the DTC funded all those crazy things you said that I did. And, 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 but, it, but what really came down to is not having a tasting space, not having a home. You know, marketers will say, you need to be storytellers. And, but when everyone starts, when people who don't under, truly understand what that means, they start telling stories about themselves. And it's always like, come to my vineyard, sit on the patio of my back porch, sit in our rocking chairs and look at our vines. It's never you. It's never about the customer. It's never about the person. It's always about you will only truly experience our brand if you come here. And like that to me is, is totally against everything I was talking about earlier about living vicariously through the pages of a magazine and transporting myself to something. I grew up with, an, I don't know if you guys are old enough, but that Calgon take me away commercial. Yeah. And like that as a marketing mindset is incredible. And then I was thinking about when you were saying Masakan is everywhere, it's like, I remember meeting Michael Skernick and he and he and Harmon had been were trying to get Masakan to go over to Skernick Wines for a number of years and finally met him for a drink and he was like, How much wine do you make? And I was at the time I was like, twenty five hundred cases. And he was like, he just stopped talking to me. And I was like, What 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 happened? He's like, There's no money in that. And I was like, For you or for me? And he's <laughs> like, He goes, You're everywhere I want to be, but you don't make enough wine. How do you do it? And I'm like, I just I work with good people who want to put the wines in great places and they just happen to be the same places you like to drink. And I think, you know, I'm no different than you. And we like to drink and eat at the same places and shop at the same places. And that's where these wines ended up. And that's a great, you know, it's, it's a great acknowledgement of their work. Um, but it's also 
a lot of uh, the wine industry doesn't like to talk about production levels. They don't like to mm-hmm. talk about winemaking techniques. They don't like they like to create false scarcity. All these things where I'm like, no. The best thing that ever happened to, to Masakan during the pandemic was I finally broke free from this allocation model of my website and DTC and I just left the gate open. Yep. And to this day, the gate is open on the Masakan website. Anyone can go in any time and buy a bottle of wine. And why should we restrict people from serving them joy or something <laughs> that they can't... People go to a winery website for two reasons. One, to buy wine or two, see if they can taste in your tasting room. Um, why stop them? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so Wait, I just, hold, hold on. You're going to fill out all this info first, <laughs> then you do this. and Yeah, it, it is... Um, it's one of those things that I feel like is... Um, it probably made a lot of sense in like 2006. Like it probably... 1996. Made, exactly. <laughs> Back when you'd get the paper mailer. Mm-hmm. And I remember those days. And you're like, oh, wait. Then the website came and you're like, can't buy anything. I, I still get the paper mailer from some wineries oh, that oh I subscribed gosh. to in 1999. Whew. <laughs> it's amazing. They kept up with me. And they, well, they'll, and still they, send me, they'll still send me offers and I haven't bought a single bottle of wine in, <laughs> in 24 years. It might years. happen. They haven't got a new mailing address yet. <laughs> yeah. um, no, but I, I think one thing I just... A few things that just really hit me with some things that you said that I think is just really beautiful is where one, when we were talking about that here you are, like where I'd see that maybe you're experiencing um, incredible sensitivity on pricing or competition based on, oh, like I'm competing against all these, you know, uh, Italian um, producers and Italian regions. But what at that time what seemed like what you were selling, even though they were Italian varietal wines, is you're selling Napa. You're selling, like, here is a chance for you to enjoy this place, and whether it's Napa or Sonoma, but at a tier, at a price point where it's not the cab pricing, it's not even the shard pricing, it's that. But you have something beautiful and wonderful coming from these, like, storied places that may be with Italian varieties, but, like, it's, it's these great places. And that, I think, is... It's just a beautiful way to look at it because, you know, you see out there in the market, and I mean, I experienced it back in the day with Dirty and Rowdy with Mervedra, and they're like, oh, why, why would I buy this when I can buy Tompier for the same price or whatnot? And you're like, well, they're radically different, but what I like, again, with what you had was like, oh, no, but this is Napa. This is, like, these are these places, and we forget sometimes living here is how much People want to experience that. And like you're going through the magazine, like you're going through that adventure where like, oh, whether it's here in person or on the table, I want to experience a little bit of that. And I think that's just, just a really beautiful way to to think about that. And yeah, I think that surprised me. And I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, as, as the evolution of Masakan, the brand, started with its feet, you know, in the vineyards and grapes of Napa Valley um, kind of grew to Sonoma, uh, now growing out to Lodi. Um, I'm also thinking about the brand Napa, which I, uh, it's my home. Um, It's great, but it's not big enough. (laughs) It doesn't have a wide enough net. And so what what does? California has a wider net. And I think of it as a way, if I'm on the East Coast, which I was for 33 years of my life, I hated California. I just there's this rivalry, mostly through sports, right? And mostly through New York versus LA or San Francisco versus New York. Hip hop. And hip hop. And <laughs> and so I always had this competitive thing with California. But it was also the place that everyone was drawn to. 
like every American is drawn to this go west young man, excuse excuse the use of man, but like this is an old phrase, um, and find gold, find a new life, find a new career. And I think we all still want that a little bit. I all still think that, you know, we grow up and we get older and we get a house with a picket fence and two you know, 2.4 kids, we think of these pla- the places where we want to do this. And sometimes it is in this uncharted territory called California. And California offers so much wonderful agricultural, so agricultural wonderland. And, but it's also a wonderland of entertainment and creativity and arts and culture and food and all the things that I, that, that I think Masakan also aspires to be part of. And so I think that casting a larger net is, is, Phase three of Masakan's evolution. Uh, it's I'm in Act three of my life building a brand, but Phase three for Masakan is now this casting a bigger net. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable to think that where you've got when you've got a world class region like Napa and you know famous globally. Yeah, you need a you need a bigger net. And for us that live in the the valley and see, you're like, wow, it is. It's pretty effing small. And you know this exactly because I tell this all the time. And like I'll get uh, – someone will ask me when I'm pouring wine at a tasting or something, is this uh, you know, natively fermented or organically grown? Or I'm like, I'm like, I'm sorry, but this Tokai is planted in 1946 and I have to kind of feed it nutrients and inoculate it because – it's kind of fucking old, and I Yans can't. Are thirty, <laughs> and I can't really go to their neighbor and be like, "Hey, do you have seventy-six-year-old organic tokai that I don't need to inoculate or give some amino acids and vitamins to?" Because I would take it because it doesn't exist, right? Like you can do that with cabernet. You can be selective with cabernet and chardonnay and merlot and cabernet franc. You can't be selective with mabetra. You can't be selective with tokai Filano. and you know these are these are fringe varieties that. Um, that I want to work with, but I don't have the means and the capital to plant them, and someone else did, and we'll work over time to to be organic. And we've done we've moved a bunch of Masakan vineyards in fifteen years to organic farming. Uh, I moved a bunch of Masakan wines away from um, added nutrients, and I've gotten as and I learned a lot of that through my time at Larkmead. I mean, by the time you know when I was twenty twenty and the fires were burning around us, I was like thinking of the. I was thinking of the raw fair that I was going to bring the first Napa Valley Cabernet to the raw fair in 2024. It's like completely, you know, no nutrients, no sulfur, no nothing. Like we, we set up a couple of tanks and do this. And it was like, I was like, oh, I'm not going to let this place burn down. I want to be the first Napa Cabernet <laughs> in the raw fair. And I had a vision. I had a dream and a goal to show that you could make incredibly uh, delicious wines at the at a world-class Napa Valley level and still be, you know, and still be fit. And with the cool kids like you, Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time no, <laughs> for both of us. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, I think whether it's different ways of winemaking, different, you know, you know, especially when you're talking about the varieties that you're working with and there's so few of them, like it kinda kinda leads me to think of like like what are the stories right now um that you really like, what are the stories that you feel like for California wine that need to be told right now? Is there something that you feel like that just isn't out there, that's not, you know, if people are getting stuck on whether it's, you know, on fermentation techniques, on, you know, what style of the wine does it fit in? Is it in the natural world? Is it the minimal? Is it the modern? Like, what, what stories are important to you that people uh, are missing from, say, California, California wine right now? 
I, lo- I love this question because I've, I've been thinking about it with a different answer and been thinking about this for a while with a different answer. So the weird thing about Europeans is their sense of pride in where they're from. And you don't need to be in the wine industry in Italy or in Sicily, but if you come to America and you sit down at a table with me in a restaurant in San Francisco, that person will speak so with so much pride in Sicilian wine that it's crazy. Whereas like if you take someone who like, works in San Francisco in, in a bank or in Silicon Valley or in entertainment in LA, they don't go to New York, sit at a restaurant and talk with pride about California wine. It blows my mind how Europeans are so responsible to their heritage and their tradition and their product that, the, the, that their neighbors produce where here in California, no one gives a shit. No one walks around except for us selling wine. The people who sell wine talk about how great California, and I, I could say the same for Oregon, Washington, New York, et cetera. I just, it's wild to me that we haven't, for as many years as we had, and maybe this is a prohibition thing, maybe this is a 40% of the people don't drink wine thing or alcohol in general. It's like, we still haven't really created this idea that California is one of the greatest wine growing regions in the world, uh, whether it's Napa Valley or Santa Barbara County or wherever you want to talk. And as we should just have pride in it as, a, as an American people, not just a Californian. And I'm baffled by it. So when, I, when you ask about what's the story that's not being told, that's the story that's not being told. That we, we don't have some sort of you know, weird kind of uh, association like the Europeans do with all of their products. They'll sit down and talk about the cheese like it's the mm-hmm. best cheese in the world. They'll talk about the wine. They'll talk about all the things, the cured meats, whatever it is. And they'll put they'll bring it back to a sense of place and they'll show pride. And we I don't think we're there. I think we're I don't think we're there as a as an as an American consumer. It I think this is probably one of the biggest changes for I think for definitely for Kate and Kate and I, if you can agree or disagree, but when COVID hit, um the radical shift in our drinking from imported wines to domestic wines was, I mean, we were probably before, with the exception of a handful of bottles here and there, uh, we were probably 90%, you know, drink 90% imports. When COVID hit, and it's remained that way for us. Like we are probably 80% domestic and a lot of wines made by friends, but even like going out, going out, to, going to, out to dinner, like, yeah. you know, at Valley twice this week and both times made sure like we're ordering California wines even if it's from producers that I don't know um, personally but know of like making it this point of we take such pride in the farm to table movement we take such pride in all of these things that have been like that California knows for food and even the US itself but like 99% 99% of the time you go to those restaurants, whether it's at the three-star level or the cool kid bistro or whatever, the list is 80% European. And you're like, wait, doesn't, how does this work? And I, not to, I don't want to be like, just like wave like USA, USA, but going back to what you said, it's just, it's almost like we have this apologetic thing of like, well, we've got some California wines over here. And maybe there was a time where you could say, okay, maybe there was a period of maybe a decade that 
there weren't a lot of options to maybe go with a certain style of maybe a more kind of fresher style of food or whatnot. There are thousands of options now. And when you think of whether it's Masakan, whether you think of it's Enfield, Matthiasen, Arnott Roberts, Pax, Rhyme, these are folks that have done it for 15 years, and all the folks under them, there's so many choices, and it's like, how? Like, yeah, I just, I hear that so strongly, and I still see it, but it's nice when you start to see, like, a little shift here or there. Um, I'll leave the restaurant name out of it, but when I was in New York um, last spring, um, pouring wines for folks. There was one great restaurant that was just so excited to have more California wine. It was the first time I heard this. And they're like, we have so many people now, like we were a destination for people from other countries that um, they don't want to drink expensive European wines here that they can get half price or a third of the price back at home. They're like, where are your California wines? And I'm looking forward and I'm hoping we reach that tipping point here in the U.S., whether it's in New York, SF, LA, Topeka, you know, where, you know, Barnstable, Massachusetts, <laughs> where <laughs> we start to have, you know, we, we start to see uh, that, that ex- I have no idea where I said I Barnstable, either, but, but <laughs> like, really? it sounded great. It sounds good. It's good. It's got a Barnstable. Like it feels, rolls off the tongue. <laughs> but no, I, so I really appreciate you saying that because um, I think it's important. You make a really good point about just, Europeans coming here and being shocked at their own pricing. I've, I've heard this from producers uh, from you know Germany to France to Italy saying, oh my God, I can't believe my wines are so expensive here. But you know, also just going back to your point about wanting to have more California wines in New York, I think you know, pre-pandemic that was London. Remember the days like you know, Sager and Wild and, oh my and Michael Sager and all the and the things that they you were doing. Pallets over there. Yeah. And all the all the you know, the 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 young new creative uh distributors with like the noble rot guys except like every like 10 years ago they were all looking for the next wave of of california wines and i think and then now the the danish countries is kind of similar to the same thing with pinot and chardonnay it's like burgundy is is priced itself out of every price itself out of countries yeah. <laughs> let alone let alone homes and and sellers and i think that that you know california offers so much value as long as you know we can continue to make wines that are that offer value and not try to get caught up in the the economic arms race of of selling the most expensive bottle on the table. Yeah, we were sort of touching on this earlier for a minute, but we've Marty and I have been talking a lot about this of you know wine, California wine specifically being at this inflection point. It's a softer market. Visitation is down. Um, like you pointed out, people aren't drinking as much wine. And I'm wondering for you, sort of riding those waves, and you've been in this for more than a minute, um, how how do you sort of approach that? Are you like up and down, middle of the road? Like what grounds you? And how how are you looking at um, how are you looking at the market right now? And what we're sort of in, um, you know, as as winemakers and looking at the future. And this is a question too, of course, we're getting asked by lots of people out there. It's a great question. And I, <clears throat> something again, I'm, I think about a lot and I have actually, I have one word and one word only, and it's going to sound weird until I describe what I'm talking about. But the word is Italy. It's not only my, my final destination in life is to live in, and, and move to Italy, but 
um, what I told a bunch of Italians in a room in Verona at a wine marketing conference back in November was, I think the wine industry has gotten it all wrong. And what I mean by that is we're so focused on generational wine sales, who we're selling wine to. And the way I looked at casting a bigger net, I look at Italy and they just use them as an example because I was sitting in, in Verona and I said, a 21-year-old wants to travel to Italy. A 61-year-old wants to travel to Italy. They both have the same destination in mind. It's just how we get them there and it's what they do when they're there. It's not, so I think about this as going back to the California comment of casting a bigger net is that everybody wants to be a part of this Stop ageifying everything. Stop telling me that this person or that person um, is not going to drink wine because they they have they're apt to do something different in their life. And 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 maybe I'm kidding myself when I'm saying this, but I think it goes back to this for me and what Masakan provides. It provides this joy and deliciousness at a price point that a 21 year old can afford and a 61 year old can afford. Um, and it also provides an energy of surrounded by this thing called the Mediterranean Sea and and a touchstone of transportation of whether or not you've ever been there. If you've been there in that Mediterranean Sea, it could be Miami Beach. It could be Catalina Island. It could be the Ozarks. It could be anywhere (laughs) that you felt you had a great fucking vacation and the water was blue and the sky was blue and you had something cold to drink and maybe it was wine, maybe it was a beer. But hindsight and your memory is so much more rosier and colored and it gets better over time. And if we just stop thinking how stressful it is to sell to a generation of people who aren't drinking as much wine as they used to or as as the generation before them did, it's going to cause us to go crazy and it's going to put us out of business. So it's really, it's hard to say, I'm not saying throw paint against the wall and hope that it all sticks and creates a beautiful picture. I'm saying start casting a little bit bigger of a net thinking about what the wine industry offers to a consumer and think about the consumer. And again, get away from, get away from, you know, it's a story about me. It's a story about them and how they want to drink. And that's like the whole editorial vision of Masakan is where do you want to have a glass of wine? Where do you want to have a glass of Masakan? Do you want to have it at art gallery? Do you want to have it at your kitchen table? What do you want to have it when you're cooking? Do you have it, want to have it when you're watching Netflix? Do you want to have it when you're reading a book? You want to have it when you're traveling, when you're at a restaurant. Like, where do you want to have a glass of wine? And how does Masakan fit into that world? And so I think of Masakan as world Masakan. Like, where is where where is the where is the next person who just wants a glass of wine when watching a movie, and not saying I need to find the, you know, I need to learn how to talk to that person. Right. And I, that 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 is it's just I think we're 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 creating analysis by paralysis and we're not opening ourselves up to what wine does so well, which is bring people together. And so that's been a big part of my focus in creating this vision of the world um, and just connecting with cool people who want to do great shit. And like I have a, a young woman in Brooklyn who's like my quote unquote DJ who's created over, you know, so many hours of, you know, do, you know, dozens of playlists and hours of music that I listen to every day while I'm doing work and it just, and I, I know at five o'clock I'm going to have a glass of wine or cocktail or something, but yeah, it's been, it's been, it's the roller coaster is as rocky and as anxious as you want it to be is if you take a step back and look at it, you can figure out how it moves. 
And I just don't think that we're, we're, we're more happy to be on it and scared than we are taking a step back and, and figuring it out. Yeah. Dan, it's one incredible to hear the journey and the journey of you, the journey of Masakan, your vision of wine, what you want it to become beyond Masakan, I think, just for, for people and how it lives in their lives. And I think we can see from our point just this, again, this, this incredible journey to a place that you wanted to go. And as I mentioned, it's inspiring, it's exciting, it's intimidating, it's all these things that make you feel like that beautiful, sweet tension. And to see that like realized in you is just, it's really, it's great. And it's great to have, have you here and to hear from you. One thing with this podcast, we've always wanted to, we want to ask every guest one question. Um, <laughs> actually, want to ask a bunch of questions. So but, many questions. But there's one, when we talk about like all of this, again, the journey, the success that, you know, that you and Masakan have had, but let's talk a little bit about the part that I always find interesting as an, as a creator, as an artist, as someone that has, you know, did not repeat necessary things that were done before. What have you created that you absolutely loved that didn't work out that you still love that you're still like that's still in your like in your heart has there been any, anything like that whether it's wine or wine adjacent how long do we have <laughs> <laughs> i have about a dozen things that i did over the course of masakan's life um you know, everything from a vermouth program, which I still think has, has longevity uh, if we can turn it back on in the future. That's the one thing. Um, I thought of when I rebranded in 2018, I was rebranding the world of Masakana as doing everything aromatic. So today there's a Masakana perfume. Um, I wanted to make all the aromatized aromatic, you know, things, vermouth being an aromatized wine, Masakana being an aromatic white wine on a, on a wine list, Gin being an aromatized spirit, uh, tea being an aromatized hot water, um, all the things, coffee, all the things that smell good and that draw us to the glass. Then I realized that Masakan wasn't all those things to all those people, and I needed a team of people to reach all those different people um, because it was, and so I had to focus really straight down into wine as opposed to going through the vermouth. I on March 6, twenty twenty, I sat at a table. Peter Luger's at lunch in Brooklyn and was talking to a, a team of people about starting a Moscon gin program and then the world shut down. Um, so all these things, I've done so many things. I've, I've done beer. I've done Belgian wit beer, which is aromatized wheat beer. Um, I really do think I failed at understanding early the effort that goes into those products and that this one singular thing, Masakan is has to be one singular thing, a glass of wine and not all these other things to other people unless I'm able to kind of build, you know, the, the, the legs of the stool to each of the stools that we have to then kind of work towards. And I didn't have it in me because I was a sole operator. But I will say the one thing I know is really going to work one day, <laughs> it's not going to work one day, <laughs> um, is Bar Masakan in the metaverse. Oh, no. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It's I'm, next to Snoop's place, isn't it's it? It's <laughs> right next to Snoop's place, right? In, the, in, in Sandbox, for sure. Um, we'll be I, there with you. I just, <laughs> we'll I, be I your just, neighbors. 
please, please. No one else more is people. there. No one more else people. is there. Get everyone there. Um, I just think that there's there's 55, actually the number is higher. Um, it's something like 64 million unique users of Roblox every day. Uh, there's something like 28 million unique users of Fortnite every day. I think it's even higher than that. Um, and you, you think about how those are metaverses in a weird way. They are social, they're social gaming. And I do think that there's a lot of ways that that generation in 10 or 15 years is not going to leave that behind. They're going to bring that into their world. And I think having, I think of Barmasakan as something that's open 365, seven days a week, doesn't have a religion, so it's never closed on a holiday. <laughs> and if there's a way with these large language models to recreate, you know, the Dan Petrosky as a bartender, my wife always thinks I'm a better bartender than a winemaker. <laughs> um, I think my pod during the <laughs> pandemic would say the same thing. But um, I really do feel like, and I'm, I'm going to send you a, a release, <laughs> uh, you guys, uh, in a couple of years from now to say, hey, can I use my voice from this podcast as part of the, of creating the answers to questions that people have and take all the podcasts that I've ever been on and then just kind of put them into this you know, voice simulator that has all the information about Dan Petrosky and his bio and all the stuff and then someone comes into Bar Masakon in a metaverse, there's an avatar of me there that's been gamified and allows you to have a conversation. And it doesn't need to be wearing goggles. You don't need to be Mark Zuckerberg or any of that shit. Um, it just needs to be like, why are we watching Brady Bunch Zoom and why are we not just sitting in Bar Masakon having the same conversation, drinking the same glass of wine? Instead of me just seeing in a Brady Bunch Zoom, I'm doing a uh, tasting at the end of the month with uh, you know Harvard Law School and it's going to be on Zoom. And I'm like... These kids probably would be much better served if they, we had Bar Masakan and they can get in there and sit at cafe tables and it looks like an Italian bar out of Venice and and we had the same conversation and you're drinking the same wine that you're sitting in front of a computer and just watching yourself. You're and you're creating the movie of your life. You know? It's like we you know, Hollywood loves laid back entertainment where you sit back on your couch and just sink in for hours and hours and hours of Netflix. Why do you think they shorten the time between next episode and like Netflix? They want you to just lay back and never give up. Well, what about engaged entertainment? And that's what Fortnite is. That's what Roblox is. That's what a generation beneath us is doing on a regular basis. It's what the gamers have been doing forever. And I think that that's, um, that engaged entertainment is is potentially Bar Masakana in the metaverse. Um, and it's everything in the metaverse. You know, it's could be anything that you want it to be again it's a calgon take me away it's the end of the night kids are asleep wife stopped yelling at you and now <laughs> you're just like i just want a glass of whiskey or <laughs> a glass of wine and i want 15 minutes walking to bar Moscow and hear someone speaking italian or french or german um have a conversation with your neighbors and just just escape like you did in the like i did in the pages of a magazine that's what it is it also strikes me too in hearing you talk about that that there's um, there's access, right? And we talk a lot about the barriers to wine. We're talking earlier about planning your trip to Napa and how much that's going to cost. And even if there is some cost associated with the metaverse, right? Like the access for people to enter into that space with their bottle of wine is, um, yeah, get a lot more people there. Yeah, and I think, Dan, if look at things where in many ways we can see that you have created something and you have arrived, but it's so wonderful to see that you 
just keep going. Mm -hmm. And that for us is the inspiring part. That is why we are so happy to have you here on The Extra Dimensional Life and why we want to be part and watch where you go for the next 15 to 20 years of your career. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for doing everything you've done for California wine, for your peers, for drinkers, and thank you for uh, bringing us into the movie of your life. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Extra Dimensional Life. We are thrilled to have you here and honored to have our friend Dan Petrosky joining us. If you are interested in Dan or Dan's wines, you can go to www.masakan.com, and that is M-A-S-S-I-C-A-N. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like, or follow on whatever service you get your podcasts on. Feel free to leave a review. And the most important thing you can do is share it with a friend. I look forward to having you here on the next episode. Adios. <laughs>